Good day, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Beyond the Checkbox, where we learn how to integrate more mental wellness into our organizations. And on today's episode, we're talking to Dr. Nicole Letourneau. And this conversation was wild for me because a lot of what we had thought about genetic expression, specifically around mental health and trauma, has been uncovered or changed in recent years. And the big insight for me, well, there's two real insights that I found. One, the pattern of care that you get as a young person between zero to five is so important for the rest of your life, crucially important, uh, mostly because, and this is the second point, your genetic expressions change over time. And sometimes your genetic code, and she kind of dives into what this looks like and how they're proving this, how genetic expressions change over time. So the things that we uh, do early in our life have a change on the actual genetics of things that we express in our brain, which obviously have an impact on things like resilience. Uh, awesome conversation. Was very lucky to have Dr. Nicole Letourneau into the studio. Uh, so I hope you enjoy the episode. I found it uh, very expansive and interesting. So enjoy the show. And uh, thank you, as always, for watching Beyond the Checkbox. You are listening to Beyond the Checkbox, a podcast that focuses on leading strategies around bringing more mental well-being into the workplace. My name is Ryan Todd. I'm a psychiatrist and the CEO of Hidversity. I'm sitting down with industry-leading changemakers to break down their process and see how they are going above and beyond for their workforce mental well-being. What are you finding the most interesting about right now? Well, in my work, the most interesting thing to me right now is that we're starting to figure out how we can actually change children's gene expression when they've been exposed to stress. Because mm. there's all kinds of evidence, you know, the, you know, the epigenetic literature, right? That, you know, we, everyone's born with a genotype and it doesn't change. But our experiences that we have um, change what genes are expressed, right? And yeah. so there's certain genes that are affected by adversity yeah. or positive environments, right? More than others. So, um, and we, and one of the, one of the theories about why so many children uh, struggle is that uh, they've had these poor early environments, you know, poor, your parents have been stressed, they've had depression, they've had uh, violence in the home, they've had low income, they've had addiction issues, and, and, and that undermines parents' ability to be sensitive and responsive to children. And sensitivity and responsiveness is what children need for appropriate brain development and even physiological development, like uh, things related to cardiovascular conditions and, and inflammatory conditions. When Believe you it say or not, sensitivity and responsiveness, break that down a little more yeah. for us. So, yeah, I can, actually. Um, there's a metaphor that we use to talk about sensitivity and responsiveness, which is serve and return. And it is such a simple idea, but it is so powerful. I don't think people fully appreciate how powerful it is. But... You know, when a child serves up a cue, like they make eye contact, like you're making yeah. with me. It, a, a parent who is sensitive would notice that and recognize their child wants to keep interacting, okay? Versus if you look away, a sensitive parent would notice that maybe the child needs a break or, you know, there's some kind of change that they need to have oh, happen. Okay. And that's a very subtle cue, but yeah. the more obvious ones are things like crying. A baby serves up a crying cue, the child needs some help. They need a change. They need the parent to address their needs in some way. So... 
uh, it goes from the very, you know, subtle eye contact or looking away or to very big cues like crying or uh, that sort of thing. And everything in between. And everything in between, yeah. And so sensitive parents uh, responding to those cues, that's exactly what children need in order for their brains to develop optimally. That's brain development and human development hap happens in the context of relationships and that's how relationships happen serve and return interactions right is it the more responsive the better mostly mostly because there are but upper limit there are, there or are too responsive you can be too responsive yeah because you know there's also parents need to set limits and you know you don't pander to your children not every every need uh yeah. you know, needs to be met sometimes parents you know, there's part of that whole learning is that sometimes parents have to attend to somebody else, like another child, or you know, make dinner or whatever. And so, part of the serve and return is also, you know, uh, reacting in a way that lets the child know that yes, you're important, but this is the thing I have to deal with right now, and your your needs are important, and sometimes they supersede all else. But other times, there's you know, they don't. But it's about uh, so these sort of healthy serve and return interactions. Like you're right, there's a whole variety of them, and you can be too responsive, and you can also be too. Uh, one of the things that I, I kind of um, think a little bit about is a parent who's very controlling of their child is very sensitive and responsive. They really pay attention to their child, but that also can be um, uh, abusive. Yeah. You know, so there are def you know, there's you don't want to take it to extreme, but definitely in general, a parent who is more sensitive and responsive to their children, to their child, are, is like likely to have a child that grows up optimally in terms of brain development and mental health, and things like depression, addictions, um, family violence undermine that ability to be sensitive and responsive for a whole lot of reasons. Like if you're a, a, a depressed mother, the yeah. symptoms of depression undermine yeah. your sensitivity. You know, just the fatigue and the lack of energy and the low mood. Uh, you know, the child is not going to get the kind of sensitivity responsiveness or the serve and return is just not likely to um, to um, be as timely. And same addictions, same kind of thing. You know, the, the, the parent who's on a, a substance is not likely to be sensitive and responsive to their child or that sort of thing. So anyway, all that is to say is there's a huge body of evidence that shows that when um, children grow up in environments where there's less sensitivity and responsiveness, they, these toxic stressors, we call them depression, violence, addictions, and low income. Say those again, toxic stressors. The toxic stressors are considered to be maternal or, or family depression uh, in the parents, uh, addictions, um, ad uh, family violence, and low income. So those. Wow. Yeah. So those things. And, and they, that's often, that's they often travel incredible. together. Yeah. And they often travel together, right? You know. But the low income thing's really striking. Mm -hmm. That poverty plays. Poverty. And it often goes along with depression, right? People yeah. are in these situations they don't want to be in. And they often also end up with uh, addictions because they're managing their, their mental health because they're stressed with their low income. Like they often, it's quite amazing how they, hmm. they all seem to travel together. Are they independently? independent contributants to that are they independently toxic yes yes they are yeah i mean that would be the that's what the evidence would tell us and then but yet so it's you can kind of uh, unfortunately like have additive effects when you have multiples yeah. of but you just types. have one of those let's say you're high income and you're not depressed and you're not abusive but there's addiction in the house that is independently toxic yes well yeah that's kay. what the evidence shows us yeah but here's there's a, a sort of a qualifying statement if that person, that parent, has one of these these stressors, you know, they're depressed, they have an yeah. addiction, but if they are able to manage to be sensitive and responsive to their children in spite of that, it, that can protect their children's development. So we often say that to parents who are depressed because they don't, you know, depression's an, a, a disease. You can't, you know, you just kind of, you get treatment and you hope that you get over it. But while parents are in that state, 
you know, you, we have actually some of our, my own research shows that you can help them to be sensitive and responsive and have these healthy serve and return interactions with their children mm. that'll protect their children's development until, you know, fake it till you make it, until the parent gets over the symptoms of depression. Or, or and or, um, you know, other parents, or other grandparents, uh, people in the family network can actually That's step in. That's what I'm in. wondering they about. They can step is in and do help. Other they def- that definitely helps. That's a protective Like factor. it takes a village. What mm-hmm. if you have a nanny? What if you, yeah. all this stuff. Yeah, if you, it's about social supports <coughs> for the parent-child relationship. So either, you know, the parent can try their hardest in spite of this experience they're having, um, and or there can be other people that step in around that, yeah. chi- that child, that parent-child unit to kind of help it, help make sure those certain return interactions are happening. Yeah. So all, all that is to yeah. say is there's a ton of evidence to show that those things are toxic to children's development. One of the things that um, uh, we see as an outcome of those experiences is epigenic changes. So children's gene expression is different when they have these exposures to toxic stressors versus children who don't. And the, and the, uh, the literature shows that those epigenic changes are related to things like behavioral problems and even... From what ages are we seeing gene expression changes? Very young, very young. So, um, and how do infancy, you measure that? Right yeah, so that's what I'm going to get to. This is the most exciting thing <laughs> I think that, that we're working on right now in my lab. Is so we had seen other people, neuroscientists, you know, primate scientists, and stuff like that, actually looking at how early experiences affect gene expression. There's a huge number of people in Canada and, and internationally that are doing that work. So. Um, so, and you can see it really early on, right? And those those gene expressions changes are linked to things like inflammation over the lifespan and mental health problems over the lifespan. Okay, okay? so that's that's an established kind of um, playing field that we're in. And so, my own research has been looking at how we can intervene with families to act and actually checking to see if we can change or protect the children's gene expression. So uh, in this trial we did with um, uh, an agency here in town called Discovery House, it's a, uh, a shelter for women when they've fled violent situations, we delivered this program to these mothers and their children who were like between, you know, newborn and about three years of age. Mm. And we implemented this program, it's called ATTACH, standing for Attachment and Child Health. And essentially, we work with the parents every week for 10 weeks, and we help them tune into their babies and their young children, yeah. help them recognize yeah. cues and respond to them. Yeah. And so essentially, we're working on serve and return relationships in spite of this exposure to this family violence, this toxic stressor, which we know, and children are exposed to, family violence is almost one of the worst uh, of, of all those toxic stressors. It seems to be the most profoundly impactful. So these kids are at risk. And so what we did, um, we looked to see, we looked at the children's gene expression, um, uh, and we compared that gene expression in the kids who had the program to kids who didn't have the program, yeah. okay? And what we found is that the kids who had the program, like actually their parents have the program, the kids are just you know living their lives with their parents, but the kids whose parents had the program had gene expression that was um, better in the sense that it uh, was related to downregulation of inflammatory responses. So we saw the kids, so long story short is, the kids who, whose parents had the program had downregulated gene expression related to inflammation, whereas the kids who didn't have the program had the same uh, propensity, had a higher propensity for inflammatory disorders related to their gene expression. And it, take me back to how you're measuring that. And then I have a couple of follow-up questions. How you're measuring gene expression. Yeah. Well, so in this study, we use something called the conserved uh, transcriptional 
oh gosh, it's CTRA. I can't remember what it stands for exactly, but Conserved Transcriptional Risk for Adversity, I think is what it stands for. Yeah. And it's a set of genes that are uh, that change. There's been demonstrated, uh, there's work that has demonstrated that these genes change their expression when there's been a lot of uh, stress in the, in the child's life. But let's say you're five years old mm-hmm. and you measure this set of genes. Mm-hmm. And then you have two individuals one faces extreme adversity, violence, abuse, all the rest. One who doesn't. Mm-hmm. This person's genes at the age of 10 would express differently. Yes. And you could yes. test that. Yes. Yeah. You yeah. visualize it. Yeah. And I mean, and this work, this work doesn't come out of my lab. Like we're just using the work. Yeah. yeah. But it comes out of a UCLA lab uh, that's run by a guy named Steve Cole, who's quite an amazing, you know, uh, uh, scientist down in the U.S. And so we're using his tool that he developed to uh, examine impacts of our attach intervention on this CTRA, which is linked to gene expression changes when you've had adversity. And I have to just say a shout out to my colleague, Kara Ross, who actually was my postdoc and now an outstanding uh, independent scholar who helped amazing. get this work done. So, yeah. And do, you, do these different types of genes express throughout your whole life? Like 20 yeah, to 30, yeah, 30 to yeah. 70. That's, that seems, I mean, the interesting thing about uh, gene expression is that it, uh, it does seem to, it's impacted by the environment, right? That's kind of yeah. the, the, what's so interesting about epigenetic change. So, um, but it seems like, and I don't actually know the answer. If, if these genes, you know, if you, we, well, we have shown in our own research that if you change the environment, the propensity of these genes to be expressed is less. So potentially over time, there's still possibility for resilience if you can change the environments and improve the environments. But I, I'm not sure at what point that might uh, cease to be operating. It seems to be like a test for resilience. Oh, I know. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. And that's actually what we're trying to promote is resilience in these kids. We're trying to protect them so that... Uh, and you can measure it. Yeah. You yeah. could say, hey, that, yeah. that there's like out of the, whatever genetic expression scale you have... Mm-hmm. This young person is less, potentially less resilient than this person. Yeah, yeah. Is it there yet? Yeah, well, yeah. Or, do you, or does there, the science a, not want to go there? Well, there is another whole, it's genetic, and there's another whole area of research that is that it gets at this, actually. So, uh, so far, I've been talking to you about epigenetic kind of stuff. And um, Can you, what is epigenetic? So, epigenetic is, is when you, uh, when the gene's expression um, is changed given an environmental um, exposure, but yeah. the ge- but the underlying genotype does not change. And the gene is what's a gene? Just back us up there. <laughs> what's a gene? So, well, you know, we all have this genetic code, and and yeah. uh, and it, it encodes everything that we have or do, like our you know our hair color, yeah. eye color, how tall we're going to be. A bunch of genes will kind of contribute to that. So there are genes that code for proteins that uh, relate to our phenotype, yeah. right? And they don't change. But what does change is whether some genes can be turned on or off which is really interesting. And I know, of course, I'm not an expert in this, but that's what cancer is all about, right? Yeah. It's an epigenetic kind of, it's an exposure that changes a gene uh, so that it re- reproduces too much, you know? Creates a, uh, a blueprint for a protein that can create a tumor or yeah. create a muscle cell. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. in this case, I imagine it's like brain cells. Yeah, brain cells. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And and I mean it's it's quite complex, right? I mean we have focused in on a few genes uh, and, and their and their expression. That's what the CTRA is. In some of my other research, we've looked at methylation, like which is different than the CTRA uh, gene expression profile. It's a different way. It's a to different way of genes. measuring gene expression. So yeah. methylation is just a methyl group, which is a chemical tag which gets applied to a gene and turns it off. 
Okay, so mm-hmm. so DNA methylation you might have heard about, but that that's when, when people think of gene expression and epigenetics, they tend to think of DNA methylation. But the CTRA study I was just talking about with our attach intervention wasn't exactly that, but it still it falls in that whole area of epigenetics. So we've been doing other work, which I think is really interesting too, in how um, parents and it, it's there's a, something really we, we haven't quite figured this out yet, and I'm hoping other people will. will. But we found that parents own. Uh, adverse childhood experiences exposures so their exposures as children under 18 to those toxic stressors actually predicts dna methylation changes in their offspring and even more interestingly it's it seems to be more powerful at least in my own research more powerful than in dads than in mothers so fathers own adverse childhood experiences you can see uh, somehow predicts changes in the dna methylation the gene expression of their children so let's say i had an adverse childhood experience Mm -hmm. as a father that puts my kid at risk of expressing or not expressing genes that could make him less resilient yeah yeah and one of the things we found is that it impacted sleep for example or behavior those Mm. genes were linked to behavior and sleep do we know if it's like (laughs) this you're bringing to light the idea of intergenerational trauma yeah exactly and um that has it been traced to grandparents and great grandparents well some people have done and i i have it myself but um we you know these epigenetic changes which are what you see in the next generation we don't know if it's because of physiologic changes to the to the genotype of the parents that are that are somehow passed on in some way we don't understand because epigenetically when a when the when the sperm fertilizes the egg the epigenome sorry the the epigenome was wiped clean like none of the none of the parents uh, methylation tags remain it's all wiped yeah. clean so it's like this is for some other scientists to figure out how hmm. it transmits but we certainly do know that um, risks for offspring are, uh, in a whole variety of outcomes relate to the kind of exposures of parents and grandparents so that intergenerational trauma kind of stuff we, like in high school we we're always taught like Mendelian genetics. Mm-hmm, yeah. And then there's the other guy. Is it Lamarck. Lamarckian? And we're Lamarck. like, ah, what yeah, a guy. Yeah, I know Lamarck. Like, he could you he imagine? has the last laugh. Yeah. But this guy, this Lamarckian he genetics is, something. Is, is a thing. <laughs> it is like something, Like you can change yeah. your gene expression. Yeah. Yeah, as exactly. you like i don't think you can make your neck grow longer like a giraffe or something the giraffe that was, was always, the example, that was always was, the example. Yeah. but yeah i mean we do know that we are much more plastic yeah. as, as humans than it was yeah laid out to us and i i vividly remember when i when i realized this because i'm i've interested in nature and nurture and you know what it is like that predicts outcomes in one kid versus another and um when i i remember when i realized that epigenetics was a thing i was yeah. like oh Wow. It's incredible. Yeah. And the other thing that is really, speaking to your point about resilience, the other thing that's really interesting is gene-environment interactions because there are certain genes. I don't know if you've heard of the orchid and dandelion metaphors before, but um, the uh, there are certain genes that do um, uh, associate more with resilience than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, But the interesting thing about them is it depends on the environment that you're in. So they talk about this orchid genotype and a dandelion genotype so the dandelion genotype those kids you know broadly speaking will do pretty well regardless of their of the quality of the serve and return they have with their parents or the kind of stressors they experience they kind of just do pretty well they're like that dandelion that will grow in the crack of the sidewalk or in a lush okay green at a golf course okay you know what i mean like or something maybe so you know in the most 
perfect conditions. And then the orchid child, the orchid genotype um, is a child, and this is, I find this very interesting because they used to just think these were risk genes because they were, they only looked at kids that were growing up in vulnerable conditions. And these particular genes, um, like the MAO, you might have heard of some of these, DRD2, like the dopamine gene or the um, the MAO gene system, and they they when they looked at vulnerable kids in vulnerable situations, if you had to certain alleles or uh, polymorphisms in these genes, these kids were more likely to do very poorly. Okay, but then they started then scientists started to look at the other side, which is kids that are growing up in very uh, high quality environments where there's lots of good quality serve and return. There's no toxic stress, and they're you know have parents that are supportive and so on. Those same genotypes make for very outstanding more successful kids than normal they are you know they have good pro-social skills they do well in school they don't have mental health problems so the same genotype reacts to the the environment it's so it's a very reactive genotype right so so there's one that will do well Mm -hmm. but they may not be a shooting star or an orchid but they'll do relatively well in all environments there's another and i know it's not a dichotomy but there's another set of genes that will be expressed with a kid who like with all the right elements mm-hmm. will do extremely do well. well they do very well but so with a couple of bad elements will yeah. do very poorly yeah so like you know the orchid metaphor is it was mm. what's used to describe that kind of child so you know an orchid who's got just the right humidity and the right sunlight yeah, and the right soil whatever the they do very well <laughs> but you know if you're a terrible gardener <laughs> that orchid won't do so well so uh, I f- I'm really fascinated by that stuff too, and we've been looking at that stuff in my lab, and um, you know found you know that some the quality of serve and return interactions with children uh, does interact with certain genotypes in predicting likelihood of mental health behavioral problems in children early on. So we've been looking at that, but the the, the science is moving so fast, and I actually you know I'm applied like I'm, I'm interested in interventions and, and seeing if they work and for whom they work so i don't do the basic science but yeah. the science has moved right on and, and now they're looking at a gene network so it's not just orchid and dandelion genes a few you know a few particular genes but it's networks and and they're talking yeah. about polygenic risk scores and stuff like that so we're trying to embed that in our research i imagine well. that like it has skewed the research um not based on what genes that are the most expressive or the most relevant for that phenotype or that characteristic, but what genes we can actually measure and we understand. Yeah. yeah. Which kind of like, it's like searching in a dark room with a spotlight. Yeah. And you yeah. find something. It might not be the right thing, but you find something, so you're searching for that. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, like I, I, this is definitely moving outside of my expertise, but I know people that are doing work in this area, and, and they're looking at genes expressed in, in certain parts of the brain yeah. um, and these networks of genes and how those networks of genes interact with environments and predicting outcomes. And they're finding some really interesting things, but it's kind of hard to uh, – it, it's early days yet, and um, I think anyway. And it's a little hard to just – to use some of those more novel, uh, interesting, they're even AI-dependent tools, right, sure. to uh, examine impacts of intervention. But for me, if I just kind of go back to what I think is most exciting, is that we are able to show that we can change environments yeah. and and help parents be more sensitive and responsive, have those better serve and return interactions with their children in spite of all these risks, right, of depression, in spite of family violence. And we see improvements in their children uh, with respect to gene expression and I didn't mention but we also see improvements in their child's development and the child's behavior and the security of attachment they, their child demonstrates and 
um, at the executive function the child has. So, so we're pretty excited about that. Stuff. Th- there's more like you always hear about like the first five for the rest of their life or like mm-hmm. the first couple of years are the yeah. most important. Mm-hmm. Does the data still support that? Yeah, to my knowledge, it does. I mean, they are super important periods in development. That's not to say that, you know, intervention can't or supportive help, whatever, you know, whatever the yeah. situation is, that's, a, that's some kind of support to address the situation, you know, the mental health issue or whatever that's, that's showing up in adolescence or even early adulthood. It's not to say that that can't help or a good relationship can't help, you mm-hmm. know, to, uh, to help a person who's had a, struggle, a struggling, you know, early childhood uh, to be successful and resilient but the impacts of intervention are less over time like you know this is what the all the policymakers continue to kind of emphasize well people are resilient until and even you know brains are plastic until like you know early 30s um and and there's always hope uh you get your biggest impacts if you are preventing or addressing stressors and 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 risks early in life wow definitely and so you're getting less return on upskilling yeah yeah. after you're 40 and 50 yeah like you're not as the delta is not as big for that resilience there's some interesting things like exercise it's you know if you're thinking of brain and and neuroplasticity as one of the solutions to the to the recovery from whatever stress the person's had in early life Mm -hmm. you know exercise and even even uh um you know antidepressants and stuff like that seem to have an impact on on neuroplasticity so you know even beyond 30s there's definitely there's you never can give up hope but it's just that it's so much easier for everyone avoiding so much suffering and promoting better health and development outcomes for children it's good for societies if you want to have successful societies with income you know you know income earning tax-paying citizens that aren't uh, struggling with mental health problems you want to intervene and, and prevent as much as you can early on did COVID disrupt that? Like when we look mm-hmm. at the data in 10 years, are we going to see like gene expression, bad gene expression yeah. because of that? Yeah, I, I'm not saying that myself, but yeah, I have colleagues that are, especially, especially around pregnancy. I'll be very curious to see what yeah. they come up with. Yeah, there's all kinds of evidence from other like similar kind of crises like the um, the Quebec ice storms. You know, they, sure. there's been studies looking at women who were pregnant during the Quebec ice storms. Oh, interesting. Or um, even... Going a long way back, uh, the Dutch fam the Dutch famine during World War Two. There's, I mean, they've looked at outcomes in the children who were exposed to those sorts of things, mm-hmm. and, and they they see epigenetic change for sure in the the Quebec ice storm data in children mm. um, associated with those early exposures. And in the Dutch famine, they see all kinds of me- they see uh, interesting like kids who were fetuses during the Dutch famine are more likely to have schizophrenia and stuff like that which uh, yeah interesting so definitely there's evidence to show from other kind of similarly stressful crises that uh, those early exposures have a lot to say about how someone will develop and the health they have over their life the interventions that you study Mm -hmm. and deploy are for like parents for their like zero to five-year-olds yeah exactly yeah yeah Yeah. okay yeah that's the focus yeah. Although one of my colleagues says this stuff could be working for everyone, but I, but I have we haven't gotten there yet. We're too busy uh, just testing our interventions. For but this. that's the question: Could it work for everyone? Though? Well, the, this attached intervention that we are uh, having such great success with, and I, I really can't. I mean, it's such a, a positive intervention, uh, and parents seem to really like it. 
it's different than other parenting programs too because other parenting programs seem to assume that parents have like a deficit we have to teach you things you have to do things differently yeah whereas uh, what we focus on there is um we help parents be more reflective so we have them think have them think about what's their child thinking and feeling what are you thinking and feeling and everyone has that ability so we just kind of give people a chance to just practice it for an hour a week Mm -hmm. and it's and when you practice thinking about what someone else thinks and feels, you end up being a more sensitive parent or or in your relationships, more attuned to your partner's needs, wants, whatever. Or even if you're going to the grocery store, you know, that you've noticed the stress of the cashier or whatever, like, you know, like it just so uh, my uh, my colleagues who deliver the intervention think it could work. We could we should be looking at how it impacts other relationships, too. So, um Lots yeah. of work to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I imagine that yeah. though there's a uh, like social reciprocity is a skill, mm-hmm. and we know that if you have let's say autism, mm-hmm. you're less socially reciprocal. Yeah, yeah. Is there research in in that with kids of that demographic? Yeah, that's a, a group I'd really like to do some work with, and I, I haven't done it yet. I bet you I will before I retire. But I, I was approached by some AHS colleagues a few years ago. Um, I'm trying to think of the. This, the guy's name, he's a physician here in Alberta, and he uh, treats uh, or helps families where young children have autism. And uh, his, I'm totally blanking. But anyway, um, and he and some others uh, have done some work around um, providing this intensive kind of parenting support to yeah. parents who have children with autism. So if you have a fir- first child with autism, and your, your second child's at risk, right? Mm-hmm. So if the second child is presenting with, like, not making eye contact and stuff like that early on, they... Um, there's some, there's some research done that shows that that early, early intervention with the second child, when it's intensive and it's, it's about teaching parents how to be more sensitive and responsive to these kids, hmm. it actually prevents the, the second children from going on to be diagnosed with autism Whoa. in randomized controlled trials. So um, they, I know that they were doing some of that work here in Alberta, very similarly. They are just doing it in practice. And I remember being approached by these uh, a bunch of nurses and social workers in, in AHS, and they kind of made a joke about how they were curing autism. Because while kids were on the waiting list to get into their program, they were giving them this intensive parenting support. And by the time the kids saw the physician, the, the symptoms had abated. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? So, I mean, I think that uh, for some kids, I mean, autism has a, you know, multifactorial um, causes. Uh, but for some kids, it seems as though intensive social reciprocity kind of stuff, to use your term, you know, teaching parents how to really tune into kids who just maybe harder to tune into yeah. or they're maybe genetically they have some risk factors that put them in a, uh, in a position where they they don't just naturally tune so you have to kind of work more intensely with them um, anyway it seems to actually help a lot of kids that's um, interesting because at risk the, of autism there's a there's such a uh, it's a pretty deeply embedded construct that yeah. there's some things that are so genetically mm-hmm. hard wired mm-hmm. that it's not responsive to social or psychological interventions but you're saying quite the opposite well i mean an autism is a spectrum right so there could be some proportion of of kids on that spectrum that are very uh, amenable to this kind of intervention and some kids who aren't but why not try why not try i mean i think always some of the some of the um, drawbacks of that kind of approach is that, you know, you need to be very sensitive and careful with parents that they don't feel blamed, you know. Yeah. It's not because of your parenting. Um, there's some interaction there, right? Something th- something about this child means that they need more of what than what another child might yeah. need, right? So there's always that kind of risk 
uh, you know, and you don't want parents to feel blamed. We know parents do. Most parents yeah, yeah. do the best they can all the time. Yeah, and I, I mean, it serves... Yeah, it, it really shines a light on how important these early interventions mm-hmm. interventions are. Yeah. And there's, like, strong genetic evidence behind it. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's what, that makes it very interesting. And then also kind of parenting. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to believe that you don't really get much improvement on children's or youth mental health without involving parents. Oh, God, I, that's what I think, too. <laughs> I, but that's not very common opinion, though. Is that right? Yeah. I'm, I'm always having, in every setting I'm in, I feel like I'm frequently having to advocate for, uh, it's not just treating the child's symptoms, it's treating the context. And, yeah. and, you know, and, and I think that's challenging for some parents. That, and so other, on the other hand, some parents really want to be engaged and they, they want to be part of the solution or whatever. But um, for some parents, you know, it's fix my child. Um, but I think a lot of the time it's a, a dynamic. Yeah. And, uh, and that's hard. I, I, I don't work with adolescents and uh, I... I respect people that do because I think it's mu- that much more challenging where the adolescent's presenting with a, a mental health issue and uh, it, it needs that, that symptom, whatever, that presentation needs treatment, but also the, the parents need to be engaged, ideally. Yeah. And it's not, they're not always. And they may not want to. It might be challenging for healthcare providers to also want to engage with them around, you know, a whole variety of issues. So, but yeah, absolutely. R- mental health happens in the context of relationships. Human everything is in the context of relationships yeah. and I think we ignore it at our peril. What's your next project? Where are you taking this field? Um, <laughs> well, uh, if you ta- have to pick one. Yeah, really. Um, well, we've got a lot of things that we're trying to do. Uh, we've, ta- we've taken our attached intervention and turned it into an app because it used to be delivered one-on-one and it still is in person like this. Yeah. But um, we think and we piloted uh the, this app that we've developed with my colleague uh, Linda Duffet-Legier at University of Calgary. We've, pi- we've developed an app to uh, interact with parents over their phone or desktop or laptop computer right. to deliver the program. So we're hoping to get some funding for that. Um, we have another program for depressed mothers. Uh, it's called VidKids, and we developed an app for that too. Um, the pilot work showed it to be very positive. And that's, that intervention is really interesting. It's, it's about serve and return again. They're all a little bit different in their approach. Yeah. This is a three-session intervention with a public health nurse we made it shorter because we wanted to be able to we'd love to see Alberta health services nurses and public health be able to deliver it and the government to see that it's feasible and effective and not too expensive you know so that we and we've shown that that intervention actually uh, reduces children's cortisol levels so you know so their stress hormones are less when they uh, their mothers get that intervention so we've taken that online we're hoping to get funding to to scale and spread that Um, I have this big health research training platform that I've gotten funding for. It's called AVA. It's, it stands for the Alliance Against Violence and Adversity. And we have about 200 partners across the country. And essentially what I'm trying to do with all my with all these partners is change how training is done for graduate students of yeah. any stripe, you know, any, any discipline or, or field. We're trying to change it so that when a graduate student or a postdoctoral fellow gets out into the world to practice their their, their craft, their discipline, that they're going to want to do it with community organizations. They're going to want to do research with community organizations because the kind of, the interventions I'm describing, they happen in community organizations. They don't, yeah. There's all kinds of research yeah. dollars and training focused on hospital care and yeah. people that are sick and, and kids that are sick and whatever. But a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about and I think is really important if you want to improve outcomes for kids at risk, happens in communities. Mm. It happens in 
the family resource center in your neighborhood. Yeah. You know, and uh, so we want to work with all those. We want we're working with all these partners across the country who deliver these sorts of services, social services. You know, they're staffed by nurses and social workers and psychologists, and they might have a physician come in and do primary health care or whatever. But we're working with all of those organizations, as many as we can, across the country to help change how training is done in the country and change how services are delivered in the country so that um, an organization wouldn't feel comfortable delivering a program or, or service unless they knew there was an evidence base yeah. for it, for that program. Yeah. It worked for kids. Like, wouldn't that be nice to know if it worked before you delivered it or as you're delivering it? So, it's that, so that, that's the, that's the big yeah. thing I'm focusing on right now. It's called Ava. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your research. It's uh, incredible. Very interesting. So applicable to what we do day in, day out. Mm-hmm. And um, we're thinking about ways more and more uh, and how we can, like, I mean, we work mostly with, uh, with employees. Mm-hmm. We're trying to figure out ways how we can make an impact with younger demographics and mm-hmm. their parents with mm-hmm. with our technology mm-hmm. um so i think we have a lot to talk about and uh yeah thanks for coming by the studio and having a conversation about it. it's really incredible work oh great i, I appreciate the opportunity and i just remembered there's other study i should tell you about but <laughs> maybe you can invite me back to yeah maybe we'll have a part two <laughs> that's awesome well thanks for coming by yeah i appreciate it it's been great very cool went fast